This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. The paper of today uh, is authored by Mark Bundler and Narcio Filo, uh, and it's going to be presented by Mark, and Tien is going to discuss it. Uh, Mark uh, will start out, he'll have 30 minutes, and then Tien will have 10, and then we'll uh, take questions. So go ahead, Mark. Okay. Thank you very much for inviting me, Judy and Orazio. Both Nurse and I are very happy to be here. We actually hardly presented this paper because we consider it still preliminary, and we were surprised that you knew about it, uh, but we're very happy to show it um, and get um, feedback. Uh, yeah, uh, you're well connected. The, um, I will use my talk a bit to look beyond the paper and tie it back to the discussions that I found so inspiring, including yesterday's and also those that Santiago measured over dinner where we chewed whether institutional transfer to Latin America and ultimately caused the backlash. I think the study that we are developing is um, going that route and will shed some light on these issues. So what we are doing is... <coughs> What we're looking into in general are the local impacts, that is, domestic countries' impacts uh, um, of global markets. There's a large literature, meanwhile, on how positive the effect of trade reforms was on the productivity evolution within countries. And so beyond the classic theory of trade, which says it's good for consumers to trade because the country specializes in its uh, relative advantage factor, uh, sectors, um, there were studies at the micro level that found, in addition, strong efficiency gains within industries, which is not typical classic trade theory. Um, it typically is achieved, as Rihanna said that in her paper yesterday, through a shedding of labor. So the major question is, where do all the workers go once they are shed? If you look back to classic trade theory and think that about Santiago's um, arguments too, most of us look at a general equilibrium model as the benchmark, be it Heckscher-Lean, be it um, Ricardian, Ricardo Vina maybe, or be it all the new trade theories at the firm level, which also show that the least productive firms should shed labor and then the most productive would expand, become exporters and employ labor. So all of them very much rely on a smooth factory allocation process. We don't know much about how capital gets reallocated, whether used machinery is really resold or not, or just written down to zero. So there we might already expect a problem. What we can now investigate with the data set we've constructed um, is how the labor reallocation process works. What we have is the social security records for all of Brazil. Meanwhile, of a span of um, almost 16 years, so we know every formerly employed worker and can trace the worker panel individually over time and through employers. Currently, the paper is not quite at the full national level yet, and I will come to the issues that uh, are caused by this, but I will show you the preliminary uh, evidence. So what do the, the trade theories tell us? They, they tell us that without a smooth factory allocation process, you actually should not expect gains from trade. And for one, if factors do not move, there is no specialization and there is no gain. So you better find that factors move one way or another. This prediction is not any different in new trade theories from uh, classic trade theory. Um, now we look at the firm level, if you think of Mark Mellitz's work or Eaton uh, and Cortum's work um, on reallocation across firms. This is all the same no matter which way you look. 
So what we want to do is we want to assess the labor reallocation in Brazil after its large-scale trade reform. What we find at the current stage of the agenda is that, first of all, you really need to look at the worker level. There are strong evidence for worker fixed effects in how they respond to turnover. In other words, they're high and low turnover workers, and the high turnover workers are affected differently from the low turnover workers. So it's non-random how, how, they, how they respond to trade reform. Expectedly, foreign competition after trade reform depresses the accession rates, that is the hiring rates at formal sector firms. It raises the displacement rates. But less expectedly and very unfortunately, it raises the odds of workers going into informal work status. That is, in other words, a buffer sector, which we didn't want to be increasing, uh, that absorbs some of the displaced workers for some time, and we are afraid, at least that's what the evidence shows, actually for large and extended periods of time. What you would find, or what you would hope from trade theory, is that the relocation process works and the comparative advantage sectors absorb the displaced workers, or the exporting firms absorb the displaced workers. Um, now we show you evidence later in conditional um, probability estimation that that is not happening. That is, it's not that the exporting firms absorb the displaced workers, and it's not that the comparative sectors, um, the sectors with comparative advantage, absorb them. And we'll come to that. Now, we are not the first to investigate this broad literature. I put together a number of authors that are in the audience. Um, not Anna Ravenga. She had a number of papers, two in particular, where she shows that foreign import penetration reduces employment at the sector level. Now, that actually is not a bad thing. If you're a classic trade theorist, you say, great, um, we want the sectors with the comparative disadvantage to shrink. Um, you only get concerned when the sectors with the comparative advantage do not expand. Um, so it's not quite clear how to read these earlier findings. In the absence of worker-level information, which we now have, others have investigated the similar question either at the establishment and firm level, that's uh, the Davis-Halterwanger and the Halterwanger-Kugler papers, or at the sector level, Penny and, and Nina Pauchnik did that. At the establishment level, the typical question that is asked is, for any firm's net job creation, there's a lot of gross job creation around it in the sense they hire much more and fire much more than they need for the net employment change. And that's often been called the reallocation process. That's a funny figure. It's often also called churning, um, which probably is a better name than reallocation. And that can be related to trade reform. And it has been found in the past that, indeed, that excess job turnover is related to trade reform, possibly in a positive way. Um, but I'll show you why this, these figures might be misleading. And, and Penny Goldberg and Nina Pauchnik found, actually for Brazil as well, and Colombia is another example, that in some countries informality increased in your sector level study. I think you did not see that tariffs, tariffs declines are associated with informality. Um, at the worker level, we actually do find that that is a strong effect. So what are we doing? Um, the results I'm showing you today are based on, a, on the universe of formal sector workers in Sao Paulo State. The 82 million between 1990 and 98. There are two issues with this. One is 
When we say a worker is unaccounted in our sample, it could mean that worker migrates out of Sao Paulo state. And in fact, in the aggregate, there is evidence that manufacturing is building up outside Sao Paulo state. Sao Paulo state is the highest income state in, in Brazil. So if you think of manufacturing firms seeking within Brazil low-cost locations, they would actually go outside Sao Paulo. Meanwhile, we have not only 80 million, we have 560 million worker observations, as I said, the universe now for all of Brazil, and we can ask about the migration question more carefully. We'll do that. It's not in this draft. The other issue is we do not have pre-trade reform information on worker turnover. We don't have 86 to 1990 in this sample yet. We have that in the new sample, so we'll also be able to relate turnover performance in the labor market to trade in a before-after regime in future work. It's impossible to work with this size of data. In fact, sorting the new data took me nine days on a central campus server, just sorting by worker ID. Um, so what we do here is we, um, we pick two and a half million or so workers between the age of 10 and 65 who have a proper worker ID in all years and have in at least one year employment at a firm that appears in a random firm sample, which we use to complement these data. These firm data are called PIA, Pesquisa Industrial Anual, that, is, that means um, annual um, industry survey, survey. For that, we have 1986 to 1998. That is a random sample. It's not the universe. Um, and it does not include the smallest firms. So the smallest are not sampled, just medium-sized to large ones. The, the largest 100 are always in the sample. That's the universe. Um, but below that, it's a sample, random sample of medium-sized ones. The problem is when we focus on formal sector work, we miss a big part of Brazilian employment in informal work. For that, we use a complementary household data source um, where we have actually the transition between formality and informality and can complement or, or benchmark the quality of our formal sector worker information with um, information from the household surveys. Adriana Kugler did not show that yesterday from her paper, but a common decomposition in the productivity studies is something like this. Pick any cross-section of firms in a year. You know by a simple decomposition result that the weighted average of productivities is equal to the unweighted average plus the covariance between their shares in the market and productivity. What you find here in, in that case is that the covariance is a big um, the covariance between firm size in the output market and its total factor productivity is a big um, part explaining productivity change. In other words, reallocation of market shares in the output market towards the more productive firms is important for productivity change. So what has been read from these statistics in the past is, well, everything's looking great, the reallocation process is working smoothly because people have looked in the output market and found that, indeed, the most productive firms command the largest market share in the output market. If you do that for labor productivity and employment shares, looking in the cross-section, that is, long-term uh, of firms, you actually find much smaller figures already, but they're still positive on the covariance side. That is, larger firm, firms with higher labor productivity tend to have larger labor forces. If you do it in an overtime composition, there are measures that do that. Haltewanger himself developed some. Oh, it's 97, I'm sorry, it's the wrong date. Um, 
And you look at now a reallocation factor, which is in column three. I'm not going into the exact decomposition. You find a lot of negative signs already. In other words, if you look at annual transition horizons, the very long-term picture is not true. And it often happens that um, actually the least productive firms expand or, uh, more likely, um, shed a lot of labor. So the, 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 more productive labor, the more productive firms shed a lot of labor. On average, all firms shed labor. So what these decompositions show usually is that the least productive firms shed most labor and the less productive don't shed, shed as much. Um, anyway, this is already some indication that you might be cautious in distinguishing between factor market adjustments and output market adjustments. Just the fact that output markets work the right way and you get the reallocation doesn't say that factors such as labor and capital do as well, and they don't in Brazil. This is an old measure, or the one measure that's been used in the past, churning it's called, that is the additional gross job creation and destruction that is going beyond what would be needed if the firm only wanted to do the net change. It's called churning. That changes quite a bit, in especially in sectors where there is um, high comparative advantage. You find in Brazil, at least, uh, strong churning. That's been interpreted in the past as reallocation seems to work. Um, now, we don't think that's quite the right way. And here comes the problem. If you look at worker reallocation from manufacturing, about 85% in 1990 stay within the same firm over the next year horizon, but only about half of the workers will still be at the same firm in 94. These are huge figures. What you would think is happening um, in classic trade series that all the displaced uh, workers go to other sectors. Indeed, some do, about 19% over a three-year horizon. But the most troublesome figure is that within a four-year horizon, most workers are leaving the formal sector, 30%. That is, they can either be unemployed or informal. In the current setup, they could also have found employment at the public sector. We, will not, we cannot yet, but will in the future control for that. Or they retired. What did I forget? Or they migrated. We can't control for all of this. We started benchmarking it just to figure out how much of the unaccounted may actually have gone somewhere else. Um, so on the, in, the, in every pair of columns here, I show in the left our formal sector data and the right um, a readjusted measure from the household data that gives us an idea how many become informally employed and self-employed. There's still a gap we can't explain with un our unaccounted. They might be migrant, they might go public sector. We will be hopefully narrowing this gap to a small number in the future. But what it tells us is we, we are not really far off. Um, the ones that we find unaccounted in the for, work, formal worker data set, indeed in the household data, also seem to be, uh, the proportions seem to be going informal or self-employed. Unemployment benefits in Brazil are not big. They um, don't sustain workers for a long time, so unless there are other sources of income then they can rely upon, most of them will likely become self-employed or informal. Now, this is all not so bad if you just think, well, at a one-year horizon, sure, some workers will be in a pool of unemployed, they will look for work, and then they will find it at a two- or three-year horizon. This gives you a 
an idea of the 1990 displaced cohort of male workers, if factor markets worked, worked smoothly, what you would see is that the black unaccounted portion of that cohort would then turn back as they slowly and gradually get reabsorbed into their future jobs. That's not happening. The black unaccounted part is actually declining over time. So it's getting worse for them rather than better. They're not getting reabsorbed even at long horizons of time. Now again, this is just an idea. They could have migrated. They could have gone to the public sector. Um, but this is the emerging picture. It does not seem that there is a smooth factory allocation process at all. Um, now we want to relate that to trade reform one way or another. Um, there are many measures of comparative advantage. The best ones are exports-based and compare the home country's exports composition to the world average or the trading partner's average export composition. I don't have the exports composition yet for the trading partners of Brazil, so we use this um, intermediate measure that only relies on Brazilian information. So what we call a comparative advantage sector is a sector where exports exceed imports relative to that sector's GDP share. Um, and, we, and then we rank all sectors uh, relative to each other. It turns out that, fortunately, this measure is very stable over time. So trade reform did not change the ranking of sectors by comparative advantage, even measured by that. Also, it's not the best. Balassa has a better one. Uh, we are constructing it. it. Since we only use the ranking and we control in many regressions for, for how the ranking changes, we don't find it to change. The measure seems to be fine, at least for a first go. This is what happened to trade reform. Um, similar to Eric Edmund's paper for India, the tariff schedule in Brazil was pretty steep. After trade reform, it flattened with some outliers. It flattened mostly through the board, the big outliers, the car industry. Um, we know it's a special sector after uh, yesterday's presentations from Irene. You want to consider that tariffs um, affect the competition at two ends, one at the competitive end um, in the output market, and once, since inputs become cheaper after trade reform, um, they actually might uh, make alleviate competitive pressure in the following sense. If uh, import, input tariffs are very high, a domestic Brazilian firm has a hard time sourcing its um, um, production process whereas foreign competitors get those intermediate goods at cheap world prices. So a high input tariff actually is a competitive pressure, uh, whereas a high output tariff is alleviating competitive pressure. What about the comparative advantage measure we are using? Um, we are trying to figure out how it changes over time. Changes are minimal. There are some jitters around the long term, um, but they're not big, so our measure probably captures the long-term comparative advantage of Brazilian manufacturing. Let me skip this. So there's a firm data set in the background. We have to do some treatments because that's strictly confidential. We cannot extract it from the statistical office. What we do is we randomly aggregate groups of three firms into, into pseudo-mergers that we artificially create and then use that information. That adds a lot of noise to the data. But since we have so many worker in, uh, workers in our sample, we just hope it's not too bad. Um, there's no other way. The Brazilian uh, confidentiality requirements are really restrictive. Um, so we couldn't get them out. Okay. Um, now, this is the, the big picture. What I want to do 
now is show you how much of the changes in labor market performance can be attributed to the trade regime and whether comparative advantage or exporting status of firms helps um, explain the, the speed of the adjustment process. So if you think of the pool of unemployed or informally employed workers, uh, the pool is being fed by the displacements uh, at the one end and is being emptied by the rehires into formal sector jobs at the other end. So we look at these two ends. Uh, we look at the hiring and the displacement rates within formal sector firms in order to ask whether the pool is likely to be increasing in size or shrinking. It's encouraging to find in the Brazilian data that most of the displacements and accessions are economic in nature. That is actually reported by the employer, so um, we, it's not that many people quit out of private um, reasons. Um, we find that foreign competition in the sense of tariff reductions in the output market or increases in the input market um, depresses accession rights at the formal sector works, that is hiring is depressed, and separation rates as well. That is expected, and you, as a trade theorist, you'd say that's great. So the reallocation starts. Um, the question is, how does it end? Um, it turns out that sectors with revealed comparative advantage do not um, really work well. They both have lower accession rates and lower firing rates, but they really should have the high accession rates. And similarly, more productive firms and exporters um, also have depressed accession rates and lower firing rates. So that, again, the, the reabsorption is not working. That is, that drawing the unemployed workers back out of the pool is not happening. Here, is a, um, uh, or here are two regressions um, that condition on the, on the displace, uh, sorry, that, that regress the accession likelihood or separation likelihood for a given worker on the worker's characteristics the job characteristics, the employing firm's characteristics, and the sector characteristics. It turns out if we don't include a worker fixed effect, um, despite our huge sample of some 5.5 million observations, none of these sector and firm variables have much explanatory power. In other words, they are really zero. Um, or Workers have specific characteristics that make them more exposed to turnover than others. Once we condition on the worker fixed effect in that displacement, we actually find strong figures. Here are, um, from one more version of the many regressions we run, the, uh, the results. The higher the product market tariff, that is, the more the protection in the sector, the higher the accession rates, that is, the more hiring is happening, and less separations are happening. So that, those are the stable sectors um, that net seem to absorb. You always get the converse figures for input tariffs, as I argued. At the input side, um, you face more competitive pressure if they are high uh, rather than less. So that's the expected sign and strong. There are many non-tariff barriers to capture the rest of the contribution. We just calculate what is really the import penetration of a sector in Brazil, that is the effective imports that have come in per GDP or absorption. Um, and as you might expect, um, the signs are similar. Um, not always significant, but when they are, they are pointing the same way. So tariffs, tariff reductions start the relocation process in some sense. Um, where does it end? 
at the sector level, if you're a believer in classic trade theory, Producing cars, clothing, oh. and sub so how do you yeah, the time? I should have done that much better. So in the yeah, in the worker level regressions, we know the workers' employer and the sector affiliation of the employer directly without that grouping. The random three-firm grouping we actually do within cells in the sense we pick year, sector, and regional cells of the firm, so that we don't just randomly assign a 86 firm in the northeast to a 97 firm in, in the southwest. We group them so that we get um, sort of a natural proximity mergers. Yeah. But the, the firm data don't really matter here yet because we have all relevant job level information in the worker data already, including sector affiliation. So the sectors with the revealed comparative advantage, they should hire most workers. That is column two. They really don't. In the sectors where the comparative advantage is strong, hiring rates are actually depressed. Now, firing rates are also depressed, so that's good news in some sense. At least it's not as bad. Um, but the rehiring is not working there. You could ask how this interla uh, interrelates with the tariffs. Um, it does. If you're a weak comparative advantage sector, but you have high tariff protection, you're actually performing better in the labor market. That's what these interactions show but um, it's not reverting any of the other results. Now, if you're not a believer in classic trade theory, and there are many reasons why you might doubt that sector classifications that make sense the way they're done, you should at least believe that exporting firms hire workers. That's what classic trade theory indirectly tells us and what new trade theory tells us directly. Um, that's not happening either. Um, if you look at the productivity measure, the high productivity firms hire less workers, and also fire a bit less, but net, they're not rehiring. Exporting status is even worse. Exporters fire more and hire less. So they are not emptying the pool, they are filling the pool of unemployed. Uh, in other words, this is not happening either. Here we are conditioning, by the way, on the real exchange rate, at a sector level, that is, we can calculate sector level real exchange rates by price, uh, using price indices. And we also condition on year effects. So if you think better, back to Eric, Eister, uh, Eric Edmund's discussion yesterday, we are basically using a similar setup. Um, we are just looking at the de sectoral deviations from the long-term trend, or the firm level deviations from the long-term trend. Okay, I don't have much time left. This is just looking at how the pool gets filled and emptied. Now, you really want to look into what is the exact pattern of reallocation. So do the workers on average go from a low um, advantage sectors to high advantage sectors or the other way around? Well, the most troubling one is in informality increases in manufacturing from 22% to 35% over the sample period. Um, the, the, as I showed you in the graph before, among the cohorts of unemployed workers, the longer the time horizon, the less you can account for the workers. That is, the more they end up in informality or elsewhere, um, but you can't see them reabsorbed. Services seems to be playing a part of the reabsorption process. Now, in the regressions, we condition on the real exchange rate and long-term time trends. So we condition out any sector sec 
particular trend from manufacturing to services that you might be thinking about, or the fact that the strongly appreciated Brazilian exchange rate during the mid to late 90s uh, filled the service sector because manufacturing was so little competitive. So that's conditioned out in all of our regressions, but services place the absorption part in part. Here is a table of the, all the transitions. So pick a worker from any of these sectors and see where he or she ends up next year. When displaced from a first quintile, that is lowest quintile, manufacturing firms measured in comparative advantage, the first line gives you where these guys end up. If you're a believer in classic trade theory, what you should see is the fifth column should take all the, all the adjustment. That is, everyone should go from the least comparative advantage to the highest comparative advantage. What we really see is they all go along the black diagonal. That is, if anything, they stay within their own sector if they are successfully reallocated. So the reallocation process is not working like any of our general equilibrium models would predict. This is over the period, right? That is over the full period using annual transitions. The picture, this is the average over the full period, so to say. In the early years, it looks a bit better. In the late years, it looks worse. Uh, no, sorry, the other way around. In the early years when trade reform happened, it, it's a bit worse. In the later years, it's improving. But it's not the cross-sectoral adjustment you might be looking for. So all our general equilibrium theories might be pretty misguided in telling us about labor. They might be pretty good about market shares in the output market. They don't seem to be well in Brazil. Comparative advantage is a sector-level variable. Um, if you repeat this with a two-by-two two matrix, of transitions between non-exporters and exporters, you see a similar picture. They either stay within the non-exporters or stay within the exporters, but there's not much. These are sector figures. I'm being shut down in two minutes, so let me show you the last set of worrisome results. The, the, um, this kind of table you can estimate in many ways. Um, we do that in multinomial logit. There are tables in the paper. Um, We'll do them even differently in the future, so let me not focus on that. The column that I don't show is all the unaccounted guys. Here I'm just focusing on the guys who successfully reallocate. The successful guys don't reallocate where we think they should. What about the unsuccessful ones? So let's use the household data, this is what we do, and ask wh whether the workers that are displaced from a formal sector job find another formal sector job soon, or they are pushed into informality. The problem we find or we found before with the RISE data is that there's a strong worker fixed effect explaining whether you're a high or low turnover guy. So Narcio exploited the PME data household survey by looking at the mini history of workers in the past to get some, some conditioning on that. So what we run is a regression of several other variables, but these are the four main ones. Conditioning on whether or not a formal worker was also formal in most of the past time that is, so to say, our mini-conditioning on a worker fixed effect in the last row. You can ask in the first uh, two rows whether the tariffs are triggering the reallocation. And as opposed to the sector-level evidence, there is a significant displacement into informality once tariffs are coming down uh, and into self-employment. So workers from the formal jobs are pushed into the informality pool um, in the household data. You can ask the other side, do they get out of the pool more often and at that end, too, it's depressing. In other words, the 
reabsorption out of informality is working less smoothly or less uh, frequently um, once product market tariffs are coming down. So trade is a strong predictor of, of, um, of the labor market uh, turnover process. I told you what we need to do with the new data. So let me, um, rather than conclude this way, uh, relate this back to, to some of the discussion earlier. One thing I think this indicates is if you do trade reform, worry about your domestic institutions in the labor market, which might be part of the slow adjustment process. If you do trade reform piecemeal, as Santiago mentioned for Mexico, might be the much better way to do it because that gives your labor markets at least some breathing space to adjust. Um, why is there so much of a backlash in Latin America? Well, part of it might be this. Workers worry about their jobs. If you tell them, well, your factory might close, but you'll find another good job, and by the way, your consumption possibilities will be so much better, that is just a bleak um, prospect. And um, slowly adjusting labor markets might well be something that explains a lot of the, the worries and um, fears that are uh, surrounding these, these reforms. So, this says stop, and I'm stopping. Okay, very nice. Uh, now, Tian will have 10 minutes to discuss, and then we'll open for questions. Thank you very much. Uh, I very much uh, enjoyed uh, reading this paper. It has an enormous amount of uh, uh, information about at the individual worker level. My basic problem was uh, uh, how do I relate it to anything relating to trade reform? Uh, because the paper repeatedly refers to what would be expected from conventional trade theory and then claims that uh, the data don't seem to support what the predictions from conventional trade theory uh, uh, would be. But uh, if you were to do that, then you have to ask yourself the question, what is it that's happening? Is it only trade liberalization? Is there uh, uh, other things going on? Now, most of trade liberalization, at least in recent uh, times in Latin America, Asia, elsewhere, uh, are accompanied by several other things. One, it's a part of a package of uh, uh, economic reforms in general. Trade reforms is only part of the, trade liberalization is only a part of the overall economic reform. Second, not only uh, tariff barriers, which are being focused in this paper, uh, are being uh, changed, but also other barriers to trade are being affected at the same time. Third, uh, most often the trade reform is part of a macroeconomic adjustment process, which includes not only exchange rate changes to which uh, the uh, Mark referred to and adjusted to some extent in his analysis, but also expenditure changes in the aggregate uh, or the contraction uh, sometimes because fiscal deficits have to be brought down and so on. So uh, that's the other side of the theory. Macroeconomic uh, changes are taking place. So to uh, apply a simple conventional trade model to uh, extract what the predictions of all these changes could be at the individual sector, individual worker level, I don't see uh, very much that one can, uh, uh, at all, predictable effects one can generate. The 
way, two ways it seems to me that one can go about analyzing. One is, of course, as Santiago presented this morning, is to have a, a well-specified applied general equilibrium model, recognize various uh, uh, groups that are relevant for income distributional purposes, and also uh, incorporate simultaneous changes in several policies that may be taking place in the, in the uh, economy and do a counterfactual exercise, ex ante, prior to the reform process, what the reform uh, effects might be. That could be uh, one way of doing it. But that, as we all know, uh, if you want to have a, even a reasonably a reasonable facsimile of an economy, uh, the uh, applied general equilibrium model is not only data intensive, but also it's parameter intensive and getting information about the parameters uh, based on uh, econometric analysis becomes uh, very uh, difficult and so quite a bit of these, quite a number of these parameters as calibrated. And so you have a whole series of problems associated with applied, applying general equilibrium models. If on the other hand, if you use econometric analysis, such as the one that uh, uh, this paper is doing, it has its own problems uh, uh, at one level. Much of it is uh, a partial equilibrium uh, analysis, and uh, uh, it uh, uh, does not often uh, the, uh, the specification of the uh, equation to be estimated is not well grounded on uh, a theoretical framework which would, uh, ex which would explicate the mechanism by which from trade policy change to uh, the changes that you are capturing in the econometric equation are going to be. And so that is a, a problem. One of the particular problems in that as we mentioned yesterday uh, in some of the papers, this is the pass-through issue. Ta changing tariffs is one thing, but whether the changes in tariffs, whether input tariff or output tariff, uh, is reflected in the actual prices uh, faced by uh, individual uh, firms for their inputs and outputs is a different matter. It is not just, there is no one-to-one -one relationship, monotone relationship, uh, when a whole bunch of tariffs are being changed to the changes at the uh, uh, individual incentives at the individual firm level. So I don't know how to interpret uh, some of these econometric uh, equations as representing some potential effects of uh, the trade reform because I don't see the mechanism going very clearly, going from uh, changes in tariffs alone to the incentives at the individual firm or sector or establishment level that these econometric uh, uh, analysis uh, uh, seem to capture. Now, even very simple trade theory for your uh, case of uh, formality and informality. By the way, your paper, I didn't find any definition, clear definition of what is informal. And uh, uh, so that uh, is, uh, no, I'm in, interpreting informal in one way in this slide. Suppose you think of a standard kind of trade model, two traded goods being produced with capital and labor, but concentrates to scale production functions. And you have an informal sector which produces a non-traded good uh, using labor and land. Okay? It doesn't use uh, uh, capital. Now imagine that there is a minimum wage 
for the, and assume the traded goods sector is the formal sector and there is a minimum wage in the, uh, in the traded goods sector, okay? Then uh, the initial equilibrium, uh, the, uh, given the minimum wage and the production possibility, frontier expressing, and suppose there is a tariff on, on the importable. Now you can easily see, you can determine uniquely what the allocation of labor to the, the only mobile factor across uh, traded and informal sector uh, to be, uh, that is determined once given the uh, minimum wage and the tariff, okay? So the informal sector, so once you have determined the labor allocation, informal sector prices are determined through the cost conditions, okay? So that's the standard framework. Now imagine a trade liberalization, reduced tariff. If you for a moment fix the labor allocation, Stolper's Hamilton theorem will tell you if the uh, importable is uh, uh, labor intensive and the, uh, the uh, trade reform reduces the price of uh, uh, the, the uh, importable, then the uh, wage, wage effect, uh, the marginal value product of labor would go down and marginal value product of capital will go up. Now to meet the minimum wage uh, condition, now you'll have to bring more labor. But if it had been the other way around, uh, the allocation of labor between formal and informal sector can go the other way, depending upon the capital intensity of the, uh, of the protected sector. And so even in the very simple model, uh, you can't predict whether the informal sector, the uh, labor, of, uh, the absorption will go up or go down with trade liberalization. Now throw many commodities, many factors, and many changes at the same time. There is no hope on earth uh, to be able to say uh, concretely what the two minutes, uh, what the effects would be. So that's on the uh, analytical side. On the specific, uh, uh, the, uh, your paper revealed comparative advantage, as you rightly recognize, uh, the way you measure it, it is influenced by current trade policy. But it so happens in spite of the trade reforms, uh, there is no change in the ranking of the sectors, minimal change in the ranking of sectors according to revealed comparative advantage in your data, right? So trade reform does damn all with respect to shifting around the sectors in terms of their comparative advantage. Given that, how does one interpret, uh, should we expect, since the rankings do not change, should we, is there any way to say that necessarily when uh, uh, trade reform is initiated, the sectors with uh, higher revealed, better uh, revealed comparative advantage should gain. And should gain what? You are focusing only on, uh, on labor. Uh, uh, in general, one would think in terms of resources moving to. And that becomes very uh, difficult once again. If you go back to the early literature on uh, uh, effective protection, now, changes in effective protection do not automatically predict, once you allow for substitution across factors, to predict what aggregate resource movements are going to be. And thrown in that context, if initially there was quite a bit of foreign investment, and that foreign investment was of the tariff jumping type, so you had investment uh, that had come in to take advantage of your higher trade barriers to sell in the domestic, large domestic market like Brazil, and if you have trade reform, now that tariff jumping investment would want to uh, repatriate itself. And so you'll have uh, 
investment effect. So I don't know whether uh, uh, this is uh, uh, the uh, leads us one to uh, have a clear notion of what to expect. Now churning issue, which you mentioned very well, now this has come up in the context of American uh, the outsourcing debate. There again, sorry. Okay, uh, uh, I'll stop. Well, let's take questions and then you can answer all of them at the end. You want to do that? Uh, you, you can write on that. Uh, yes. I, I have a um, couple of questions. The first one is about the only package decompositions you present. I, I was a bit surprised when we do the same type of exercise using Colombian data. We find exactly the same on the reallocation front. That is, there is a positive contribution of trade reform in terms of uh, facilitating the expansion of more efficient firms. But we also found an increase on the unweighted component. Um, and uh, this essentially indicates that on top of the uh, improvement in reallocation, there is a selection effect whereby only the most efficient uh, plants survive. So average productivity should increase. However, in your, in your table, it seemed like the unweighted component was going down even though the reallocation component was uh, increasing. Um, the other question is um, about interpretation. So you are trying to capture the impact of uh, trade reform, but to some extent it's not clear whether we're capturing rather the, the impact of rigidities in the labor market. Um, and and uh, uh, going along Tien's uh, suggestion of uh, counterfactual, um, I can point to, to the paper um, on Colombia, um, which I co-authored with Slava, Halti, Wanger, and Kugler, which is uh, the MBR paper in, in your um, reference list. So there we do some uh, counterfactuals, and we find indeed that uh, in the absence of um, uh, labor market reforms, uh, the, the, the reallocation process is very different, and one important aspect might be the connection between, which, which you mentioned in your talk, uh, capital reallocation and, and labor um, reallocation. So in, in this sense, it seems that you resolve that there is uh, a lot of uh, reallocation between the informal and formal sector after the trade reform, but there is no, not much evidence of reallocation within the formal sector might indicate that there is some uh, friction, whether it's uh, uh, structural, such as mismatch of skills, or whether uh, it has to do with something like uh, very high payroll taxes. There is uh, something uh, missing in the story to point out as to why we get uh, a result which uh, goes counter to, to standard trade theories. And, and one option uh, given this is that with trade liberalization, the price of imported equipment went down and also so exporters basically switched to more capital intensive technology. So I would say that to learn a bit more, it would be interesting to see also the, the capital uh, reallocation side. Okay, uh, Judy and Penny. Um, I think it's a little follow-up on it. Do you? I mean, 
Are there um, sector-specific skills that people need in order to be uh, re-employed? I mean, and so there's, you don't have any data on, um, I, let me ask you, do you have data on years of education within sectors? They're controlled. So, so this control for everything having to do. So, so your, your interpretation is that people, these kind of, uh, people are not moving because they're not skilled. I mean, could, I mean so, so the question is, how much, how much of the lack of movement has to do with a, a training component as opposed to capital or so, something else? So, so that's what I'm curious about. Yeah. Well, first, I think this is a very impressive piece of work. And there's so much to digest that um, I cannot even you know, summarize all my questions or comments, but I have a quick one on, on this issue of uh, labor market rigidity, um, and especially uh, in uh, comparison with the results that you mentioned with Nina on Colombia and Brazil. Actually, to be precise, what we found is that there was an increase in informality in Colombia, but prior to the labor market reform. And uh, we find nothing after Colombia made its labor markets more flexible. And for Brazil, we found absolutely nothing, not just regarding informality, but regarding anything. We couldn't find any effects at all, uh, which I think is an interesting puzzle because there was this huge uh, reform. There were, there were these huge reforms that I, I agree with Tien, there is so much going on that it's very hard to pin down theoretically what even to expect but at a minimum you would expect to see something, some adjustment. So when you don't see anything in the sectoral data, you're puzzled. And I think you know, this kind of work is very likely to provide answers, so especially because you have very disaggregate data. And I think another great feature that, that I would advertise is that you actually have the gross flows, not just the net flows. And if you, do, if you just look at the data we had, for example, you look at the net effect on sectors, but this mask uh, very big gross uh, reallocations. But, but regarding informality, I find, so I think it would be interesting to try to reconcile uh, your findings with ours, having said that I have much more confidence in the worker level data, but, uh, but, but I'm kind of puzzled why you find this substantial increase in informality, while if you look at the two-digit two level, you don't see anything. And it could be, again, that the net-net all this balances out, and maybe that's why uh, you don't find it. Um, and one more uh, comment regarding the capital reallocation. Um, I think it's a very interesting puzzle in the literature that people always find these capital reallocations in the aftermath of trade reforms, but, but regarding labor, no one ever finds anything. And so, and so my own explanation of why this is going on is because regarding capital or output, I would, I'd rather say, people have worked at uh, the firm level data with very disaggregate uh, data so you can actually see how output gets reallocated across plants while with respect to labor markets usually the the work is at the two-digit level again very aggregate but but um, I, I'm beginning to have second thoughts about this common wisdom regarding capital reallocations I have to say with the exception of the work of Maurice precisely because we know that all these data have the problem that you you, you just observe revenue so you have the price and the output component bunched together Right, so when people claim that there is this reallocation from less productive to more productive firms, we don't know if this is what's going on or whether we just have reallocation from firms with different degrees of market power or with different prices. So I'm not quite sure this is such a robust finding in the literature. And again, I would take Maurice's work out because this is the only data set where actually they, they do observe prices. Uh. Okay, uh, Ritio? Ratio, sorry. 
Hi. Um, I, I enjoyed the, the, talk, the presentation and the, the paper. I think I agree with Penny. It's, a, it's an impressive uh, piece of work, and uh, we'll probably see in the subsequent drafts we'll learn much more. One thing that, you know, the, the, one of the most striking things is this, um, this table that you show, uh, the extent to which uh, um, people that, that um, successfully reallocate how, how much they stay in their own sector rather than migrating towards uh, 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 different sectors. And, uh, and so if you take that as a fat one, you should start, I think, thinking about possible explanations uh, for that. One that springs to mind um, is uh, of um, sector-specific human capital. Uh, that might be difficult trans transfer to uh, transfer to a different sector. There, I think there is some work uh, relative to the U.S. on this recently. There is this Kamburov and um, what's the other guy's name uh, on, on on that a couple of years ago. Uh, it would be nice to do something along those lines. And an additional cut to the data that uh, I don't know is possible that could be informative in that dimension. I think is to look at. Um, the same table, but by a level of human skill or human capital. You might think that more educated worker, more specific human capital invests into a sector. Well, you know, if you are a janitor or something, you, you can clean um, the floors in either um, type of industries, and so there is no much specificity. It would be interesting to see whether uh, you could see the differences in that type of matrices when you cut the data by um, the skill. Richard? Three, three brief questions and then a general comment. Uh, the tariff data that you used in the study, that is the changes in tariffs, uh, did that uh, involve bound tariffs or applied tariffs? Which is it's an important distinction for Latin American countries. Second, uh, often the trade reform is coupled with reforms in industrial subsidies. So the question was, is there any way to control for changes in government subsidy programs for industrial firms? Uh, third question. Uh, what, you talked about the, the hundred largest firms that were always there, and then you talked about the medium-sized firms where you drew the random sample. I take it there were no small-sized firms. So then the question is, what's the cutoff point in terms of employment between the medium and the small firms? And what I had in mind is that, uh, at least in some countries, it's often the smaller firms that are the more dynamic adjusters when there's been some kind of economic policy reform. Uh, the general comment is that I would urge you very, very strongly that when you publish this paper, or when it's published or various versions are published, you be very specific upfront about your own personal confidence in the results, because there will be a very active audience interested in these kinds of results. The, the protectionists, the special interest groups, the people who don't want to see trade policy reform or other kinds of reforms. Because this, someone who didn't know much about the empirical data of the impact of trade reform on growth rates and so on, would assume that trade policy was employment policy, and that if you had a high unemployment rate in a country, one way to deal with it was maybe to raise barriers, or at a minimum, not to lower them. Now, if when all this is done, you really, really believe that that's the proper interpretation of the data, fine. That is, I'm not arguing that you hide that. But you need to have some kind of upfront indication of the extent to which you think this is an accurate guide to a real-world policymaker, policymaking. 
because there really is, as you know, a large audience out there for these kinds of results. Okay. For this reason, I think you're completing the national level analysis is important because people could find, if you national level, the sectoral allocations might be quite right, and even though in Sao Paulo it may be quite different. Okay, Mark, you have five minutes to respond to all those. Okay, let me try to do it by topic, but I'm not sure I will be really successful. So I will thank you all for your really excellent comments. Uh, this is early stage paper, so let me start, start with Richard's last point first. Um, the reason why we've not published it anywhere and why we were so positively surprised still that at least academics knew the paper is um, it's been at two conferences before, or three maybe in our so, um This is the fourth time we show it, and we've always put out the caveat that this is incomplete work. Um, it will come on a web page only if uh, we think we're done. Um, but we, because we completed, um, we'll have, um, we'll build up that confidence. Now, the, I think one big theme that ran through many comments is, does your tariff proxy really capture trade reform or some other policy reform? I try to say that in pretty bad words probably yesterday when Eric Edmonds presented his work on India. We're conditioning in the same way as he does. We, you load, use logits and not OLS, but it's not so different in that regard. We condition on the time trend, so any year's effects are taken out. We're really looking cross sectors. That means any policy that happens to be correlated with the trade policy will show up in the coefficient on the tariffs. First, trade policy is truly exogenous in Brazil, I think, for the following reason. On January 1st, 1990, the newly elected Democratic president took office. He signed into uh, effect a trade reform no one knew about. It was a draft in a drawer in some uh, planning ministry's um, research team um, office. And um, everyone was taken by surprise, as, by the way, by many other of his measures. Um, there was hardly any lobbying. That still doesn't say it wasn't endogenous. Tar industry sectors with the lowest known efficiency were targeted the most with tariff reductions, and also um, in the sense that those that exhibited the strongest price increases and market power were targeted the most. Anyway, that, we know what pattern the trade reform had, and there was not much endogenous lobbying. That all said, it doesn't matter whether it was trade reform or any of the correlates that happened incidentally at the same time at the same pace and the same cross-sectoral pattern. There are some policy changes that correlate with trade, the tariffs, that trigger hires and, separa and, and re uh, sorry, separations and rehires. We just say that if you have some trigger, you would want to see in a more open economy that the reallocation happens. Um, whether it really was exactly trade or a little something else doesn't matter. There was a trigger, and trade and tariffs predict that those triggers. So it's also not a test of trade theory. To be really clear, we are not saying um, this is Hexel Lean and Mark Mellet's on test. We are saying don't use simple general equilibrium models as guidelines for what you'd expect about the reallocation process in the labor market. Use, as you said, uh, some modeling of the informal sector. Brecker actually has a paper in the QGAE in 76. It's all forgotten. He has a minimum wage in there. Uh, there are papers by um, 
um, some researchers at the Michigan State University who tried to build matching models of the labor market intellectually. So there, there are many theory models which you want to extend. The only thing we're saying is, good, they're, they're being extended. That's the kind of theories that should be built into uh, simple general equilibrium trade models. Um, sure, we would want to do a counterfactual exercise once we have theory. I view this paper mostly as getting some facts clear, and then we'll explore the deeper causes. Now, there's a laundry list of deeper causes. Let me just go it down. I wrote it up over the days. There might be sector-specific human capital. There are labor market institutions, that's high indemnity compensation, other things, severance payments in Brazil that are really tough. Credit markets are highly constrained. Interest rates are huge. So if you want to set up a firm or expand an existing one, don't get the capital, how do you do it? Uh, entry barriers are large. It takes weeks to months to set up a firm in Brazil as compared to days in, in the U.S. There are many regulations of industries. Um, there's rent-sharing agreements between insiders and, and employers uh, keeping outsiders out. Um, there is skill mismatch. This is the laundry list of possible explanations. We should explore them. I totally agree. Um, but first we sh should know that we need to explore them, and that's what we're saying. There is a reason to believe that a laundry list of institutional problems um, may interact with reforms, such as trade reform or others, um, and we should look into those um, problems. Now, we are not talking about prices, so you're totally right. This is not a general equilibrium analysis. But we are not talking about income inequality or price changes, which is really a general equilibrium phenomenon. We are asking, what is the speed at which the pool in headcounts of people, of pool of unemployed is fed, and what is the speed at which it's emptied? So, fine, we're not looking at general equilibrium, but we don't need to um, just to see the triggers of what fills and empties the pool. So um, I think we are a little more safe uh, regarding those criticisms. No, that's a cop -out. Why would we care what reallocation is taking place if it doesn't have any welfare effect or whatever? Well, we care if the reallocation is really bad and slow, that there are welfare losses from that. There's an adjustment process. <laughs> okay, one minute. One, one minute. minute. Um, okay. Um, uh, rigidities in the labor market came up a lot. That's one of the institutional issues. About uh, Judy's point with sector-specific skills, similar to um, at Orazio's, we will do that. We condition at the moment on occupations, education, age of workers, labor market experience, and all these things that you can get. Um, we will do that. Stratified that is asking, um, do certain groups of education levels perform differently than others? Um, okay, perfect. Thank done. you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.